Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. It's season five. This is the very first episode. Scooter Braun is here. And in the conversation with him, it reminded me of why we do this podcast in the first place. It's about people's stories and their time before the process, during the process, and after the process. Rather than in facts and in figures, we're actually hardwired for story. It's what we remember. So in addition to doing the tools and practices, part of how you can keep this work alive inside you is by listening to and witnessing other people sharing their story. This podcast is a great opportunity to do that. And we're honored to have Scooter Braun for episode one. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and Scooter Braun is with us today. Uh, Scooter has, well, he's prolific in the entertainment, the innovation, the music, the film, tech. He's the founder of SB Projects. He's involved in so many different things, technology, culture, social good. Uh, Scooter also manages Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Kid Lori, Demi Lovato, so many things that you are a part of. You're also an investor in Spotify, Uber, Dropbox, Lyft, Pinterest, Waze, so many things. It is great to have you, Scooter Braun. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about who you are, your story. Yeah, sure. I grew up in a really nice suburb of New York. Um, I grew up in Coscob, Connecticut, so my so that I was able to go to uh, Greenwich High School, which was a really amazing public school in Connecticut. My mom grew up in the Catskill Mountains. My dad was an immigrant and grew up in Queens uh, from Hungary. His parents were Holocaust survivors. Um, my grandmother was a survivor of Auschwitz. My grandfather was a survivor of the Dachau camps. Um, on my mom's side, her dad died pretty suddenly when she was eleven, and her mom didn't have a I think barely had a high school education, if at all. So I would describe myself as the first person that grew up with privilege in my family. I grew up in a nice home. I didn't need for anything. I knew there was no trust fund. I knew there was no credit card. I wasn't, you know, a private school kid or anything like that, but I wasn't a kid who was struggling. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of friends who were struggling, but I felt like I felt so privileged I felt guilty because of the, the struggle that my parents and my grandparents had gone through. I, I always felt like, why, why did I not get their struggle at the level they did? And because of that, I think I didn't see my trauma, the trauma that I think is the human experience that all of us have in different ways. And I never saw a need to do deep work 
because I felt that my struggles paled in comparisons, paled in comparison to so many around me. One of my close friends is, you know, he had an alcoholic in his family. Another friend had drug abuse in his family. Another, you know, another friend didn't know his father, you know, another friend had deep financial issues. So I always felt like I was lucky because my parents were actively involved in our lives. We had a nice home. You know, I felt like I had this perfect childhood because I didn't want to give any validity to the struggles and the hardships that I was going through and that I was inheriting from my parents who are wonderful people, but were just that they were just people because of that guilt. I wanted to prove I could do something on my own. I wanted to make my own name. So I went to Atlanta to go play D3 basketball, but used it as an excuse just to get away. Um, the D1 offers that I had said, I'd sit the bench. I was like, Oh, I'll go start down here. But I had no intention of playing. Um, I don't know if, honestly, I don't know if I had any intention of finishing college. Uh, and I went down to Atlanta and I went by scooter. Truly at 18 years old is the first time I went by scooter full time. Before that, throughout my entire childhood, I've called Scott and scooter was a small nickname that came about in kind of middle school, high school. Um, but only very few close friends called me that. Um, I was Scott to everyone. And it wasn't until I got to Hoffman years later at 39 years old, did I understand why I created scooter, but I went to Atlanta and I created this persona and I became this, you know, big college party promoter. I sold fake IDs. Um, I got hired by this guy, Jermaine Dupree at so, so deaf when I was 20 years old, I became the youngest vice president in music. I ran his company with him and the team there for three, four years. And then I had all these ideas of starting my own and I long story, but I left and I started what is now SB projects and Ithaca holdings. And now we've sold that company to a company called hive involved in funds, all these different things. And my life has dramatically changed that, you know, now my partner and I bang, we run a, I think $11 billion market cap company together. And that started with $1,400 from a summer job. And along the way, I met an amazing person who I started a family with. I have three children. And the journey of that relationship is what broke me open and helped me rediscover Scott and helped me find Hoffman. And it's, it's nice that you're calling me Scooter on this, but I will tell you as we get into it deeper, I'd actually much rather for this podcast. And as you know, I'd prefer for you to call me Scott. When I graduated Hoffman, they call you by your name at the end uh, that you go in the world. So I was Scott the whole week. And then at the end of the process, I was Scooter. And I remember Cheshta, my teacher, who I love very much, he called up Scooter Braun and I refused to get up. Um, and he smiled at me and uh, I get emotional actually even thinking about it now. And I said to him, that name has been collecting every accolade of my entire life since I was 18 years old. And I understand now who created that name and who really has the power. And it's that little kid, Scott. And I reclaimed him at Hoffman. And I wouldn't get up until he called out Scott wrong. And it, I, I want to be clear, Drew, you know this about me. I did not like my name, Scott, probably since I was six years old, five years old. I always felt uncomfortable that I didn't feel like that should have been my name. It didn't feel like a Scott. And I went by Scooter and I felt so much more comfortable being called Scooter. Uh, the only people that called me Scott were my wife and my mother, really. And um, when I left Hoffman, I loved my name, Scott. And I, I loved it deeply. And um, so when you ask me, tell me a little bit about yourself, I will tell you that uh, 
I understand my experience now. I'm continuing to do the work, but I prefer if you call me Scott for this interview. It's a reclaiming, if you will, a, a re-owning of the name Scott. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny that since doing Hoffman, I've done all kinds of stuff um, in the last two, three years, as you know, because we've become friends. You know, I've done ayahuasca. I've done something called Ma. I've, I've gone to Sedona and studied breathwork. But the most powerful, impactful thing that really started my journey, you know, I did some plant medicine, kind of woke me up a little bit, but it wasn't cemented. I was so lost. Hoffman cemented it. Hoffman gave me the tools. Hoffman gave me the awareness. And people now, since then, they, I have so many people come up to me, friends of mine who've known me for my whole life. And they're like, I can't believe how different you are. I can't believe how changed you are. And that's why, as you know, so many people since I've come back from Hoffman have gone to Hoffman at my recommendation because they wanted to know what happened to me. And I always tell them, I don't feel like I changed. I feel like I reclaimed myself. Um, I feel more like me than I felt in 20, 30 years. And I, it's because I finally understood these things that happened to me, the patterns they created. And I understood the strength of that little boy to create these tools to protect himself. The lies that I told myself to protect myself. And Hoffman helped me reclaim and understand that the scooter wasn't the strong one. Scott created scooter. And the real strength came from that little boy who was able to create something to protect himself. That's fantastic. I'm curious as to why do you think it is? You know, there are so many modalities of change. You mentioned some of the things you've done, but what, what do you think it is about Hoffman that, well, I guess specifically helped you reclaim Scott and in general helps people change? Um, I think it works if you're willing to completely surrender and walk towards your resistance. Um, I think if you're fighting it, you have to ask yourself why. And I remember I didn't, I was told for four years to go to Hoffman by friends, by loved ones. And I was just like, I don't need this. I had a great childhood. Why would I go to this thing? I don't want to change. And it wasn't until my world that I created started to break around me. This, this, like this world I created for Scooter, this belief, this narrative that I created for myself that I felt like if I live this life, I will be okay. I will be protected. I will be happy. And then someone in my life had the courage to break that script. And at first I was angry and I was lost and I was confused. I didn't understand what was happening. Why would this happen? You know, how could this happen? And I got to a very dark place. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, but you know, I, I got to a place of a suicidal thought. And I was, uh, it was October of 2020. And for about 20 minutes, I just thought, I don't want to be here. And after those 20 minutes, I just said, oh my God, what was that? I, that isn't me. Like I, I, I need help here. And I called my friend, Josh and my friend, Penny uh, called me after she spoke to Josh. And the two of them said, you need to go do what we did. You need to go to this place, Hoffman. And um, they put me on the phone with Liza, an amazing woman. And she said, we, you know, we can get you in. When she told me the date that they could get me in, I started laughing because it was the release of Ariana Grande's album, which was the biggest album release I had at my company that year. And a, a client who's like family to me, who I 
I work with hands-on. And I thought to myself, I can't go. And I started to laugh and I looked up at the sky and I said, okay, God, I get it. You know, I have this amazing life to the outside world, this amazing story I've told myself, but here I am miserable. Here I am wanting to end it. And you're giving me a choice to choose me and do the work or continue on this path that I think is so beautiful, but is ending in misery. And I went to Ariana and I kind of explained to her and she said that I'd been there for her at different times. You know, we had Manchester terrorist attack, all, all these different things. We had been there for each other. And she said, you know, if you need to go, I got your back. And uh, we set up the whole campaign for album release. But as people know, when you go to Hoffman, no phone, no email. So when I went in, I didn't know if she was going to get the number one album. I just knew we put together a great plan. And she actually did. And we celebrated when I got back weeks later. But I went in there and I surrendered. And I just said, you know, whatever these people tell me. And what was so incredible at Hoffman is, you know, the first two days, tough. I'm not going to go into the details. But each day I thought, oh, I'm, I'm solving something. I'm healing something. And each day I thought, okay, we got this. And then the next day, the process was so perfect. It would break me open in a completely different way and show me I knew nothing. And I look back at my, my workbook now, and I can't believe that day two is day two, considering the vulnerability and the conversation that I had with Chesta, the tears that I shared with this man in my second day of meeting him. It was one of those intimate conversations I'd ever had. And Hoffman got me to see my childhood for what it was, which was not perfect. I was raised by imperfect human beings who loved me unconditionally, but with conditions because they didn't know any better. Because that's what we do as people. You know, my parents did the absolute best job they could, and they are amazing parents. But they also did what happened to them. And like the background I told you, it was a tough upbringing. So they prepared me especially for my, my dad, he prepared me for a really tough world. In part, Scott, because that's what he knew, right? Exactly. You know, he grew up with two parents who were Holocaust survivors telling him these stories. He grew up an immigrant kid in a tough neighborhood. I'm his oldest, you know, child. I'm his firstborn son. You know, if the family name, if he doesn't have a son, the family name dies because so many people died in the Holocaust. Like, he raised me with what he knew the best he possibly could. and. He did a damn good job, but a lot of things that happened to him and to me and to my grandfather were not okay. And when I got back, he and I went for a walk and um, it was all love. I, I started the conversation with dad, I love you. And, and he loves me. And I said to him, I, dad, you love me so unconditionally that I see through your lies now. You made me think it was conditional, but it just wasn't. It, you did love me unconditionally. And we talked about certain things that, you know, aren't for a podcast. And I told him they weren't okay. And he looked at me, he said, but it worked. Look at the man you are. And I looked at him and for the first time, that little boy got to stand up. And I said to him, dad, I'm great despite those things, not because of them. And so are you. Wow. Wait, Scott, I just want to hold for there. That's a, that's a powerful moment for that little Scott to stand up on behalf of himself and say, I'm great because of those moments, not in spite of those moments. It's a key distinction. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, one of my friends from Hoffman said, who doesn't have children, he, he said to me, you, would you want your children to go do this? Would you want them to take a hard look at you and your parenting and everything else? And each child's going to react differently. You could do the same thing to two different children. They're going to have completely different reactions to it. And I said to him, absolutely, because I will thank my children for getting to the patterns that I didn't get to. 
Someone I'm working with now, they say, you know, the sins of the father, you know, all these generations. And, you know, that's the idea that if you don't do the work, it lasts for, I think, what is it, seven generations? And Hoffman allows you to not have to wait seven generations of trauma. Rashi said, the trauma, uh, the greatest trauma we have is that that we do not know because it was never our own. You know, we inherit trauma. Hoffman helps you identify these things. It, it works on these things. And like you guys say, it doesn't heal you. It starts the process. I continue to do the work. That's why the following year I realized I'm like, here I am relying so much on Hoffman. I'm going to go and continue to do the work. Each year I'm going to take a week off, no phone, no email, just like Hoffman told me. And I'm going to go study something else to help me continue to do some work. Because I realized understanding your childhood patterns helps set up everything else. But then at one point you got to stop blaming the childhood patterns and start dealing with your present and who you are. Hoffman allowed me to really understand me so I could step into the me now and do the work that I need to do today. Scott, what I'm really hearing from you is in a, a timeline of healing modalities, Hoffman can be a first step because it starts so early with childhood and it sets as a foundation. And then from there, you can do other work having healed that early childhood. Absolutely. I think it's an incredible foundation. And, you know, when I got back, yeah, I said to someone, you know, regarding Hoffman about three months later, and you and I met afterwards, we did another program together. You know, this person, I said, I've done the work, like I was kind of venting. And this amazing human being looked at me and goes, we've never done the work, we're doing the work. And I think Hoffman does, it's at that foundation. Almost everyone I know who've gone, like I said, if you surrender, it's such an incredible process. And it does set that foundation. If you're willing to continue stepping into that resistance for the rest of your life, it really, really helps you. And I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And what was interesting is, you know, I did the Jay Shetty podcast and I did another podcast with Lewis House. And I, when I did the Jay Shetty podcast, I was very raw and barely out of Hoffman. And when I came back from Hoffman, I dealt with a lot of things that were probably even darker than what I went in. But because of Hoffman, I never got to any very close to that level of depression because I it gave me this deep love in myself. And I continued to deal with dark and dark things, but because of Hoffman, I had a foundation. I think that's a key point there of the problems don't go away. And in fact, what it does is set us up with self-compassion and love of self to deal with the problems in a different way. Completely. I mean, look, let's be honest. Not only the problems not go away, my experience, the problems could get worse. You know, you could, you could think, oh, the problems are so bad going to Hoffman and then come back and life smacks you in the face even harder. But Hoffman gives you this foundation to deal with those waves, to have tools to deal with those waves, to have an understanding of self, to never allow your story. You know, I think the reason many of us, at least my experience, that we get to such a deep level of depression is because when our story is broken, the story we built to protect ourselves, when that is broken and we can't live within that story, we spiral out and we go to this dark place of depression because who am I without this story? And what Hoffman does, it allows you to see that it was just a story, that you can do this and that you are living a human experience. And the story wasn't your fault. It was your strength. And I said to someone the other day, they were, they were talking to me about a relationship and they were really struggling and it had been years. 
And I looked at them and I said, why don't you admit to yourself that you love that person unconditionally instead of being mad at yourself for loving them because they hurt you? You know, why, why can't you look at it as what a beautiful thing about me? And this is what Hoffman teaches you. You know, you get to learn about unconditional love, but we don't give ourselves that credit. It's a superpower. When someone hurts you, if you are in deep, deep pain because that hurt, are you hurting because they hurt you or are you hurting because you love them so much and you're mad at yourself for allowing them to hurt you, for taking away that idea of love? You're mad that you're in pain because you put expectations on that love. You made it transactional. It's, you could choose to say, which I've now, you know, gotten to a place of, Actually, I love unconditionally. I'm allowed to be upset. I'm allowed to be hurt, but I'm not going to let it put me into a depression and I'm allowed to choose me. I think I'm still in process for so many different things in my life and I always will be. Hoffman got me to understand that I will not let the story dictate my happiness and I will not let my own expectations of what my life should be dictate my happiness. And thanks to Hoffman and people like yourself, I was not a present person before Hoffman. I lived in the future because I was afraid of it. I had Holocaust trauma in my family. There's things that happened to me as a kid. I was so afraid of what was coming that I couldn't see what was right in front of me. So if it was breaking in the present, I couldn't even see it. I was too busy fixing something that hadn't even happened yet. And when I left Hoffman, you all helped me become a present person. And it also allowed me to have compassion for the people in my life before I went into Hoffman. Because it must have been really hard to have me in their life, to love someone who couldn't be with them in the now. I had to take that accountability about myself in my part in the vicious cycle. I'm proud that now I love being present. I love being part of the greatest, precious present. And I don't even think I, I, was, I wasn't capable of that. You know, it is so interesting because people talk about the power of presence, but it it's hard to get there. It's hard to know what it is. It's hard to find the steps towards presence. And you've just done a fantastic job of of describing the power of presence and what gets in the way of us having it. Well, it's fear. I mean, I woke up every day of my life saying, is this the day they're going to come and take it away? And I didn't even know who they were. I just heard so many stories of it happening and I had seen, you know, my fear and anxiety as a kid of what's coming around the corner, you know, if I don't act right or if I mess up, if I don't perform at the highest level and out of respect for many people in my life, I'm not going to talk specifics of my trauma. And that's a beautiful thing about Hoffman for those who are wondering if they should go. You don't have to talk about specifics. You can go into a room with 30 people and no one ever has to know the true nature of your trauma. Because this process allows you to work through it without having to put that on the table. I think I just want to highlight that key piece is so many people fear that we're going to put you up in front of the room and in front of everybody, name every single last trauma and let us all witness you sharing it out loud. And, and that just doesn't happen. Absolutely not. No, it's uh, you can go in and never share one specific of your trauma in this process, but you will work through every bit of them and you will have incredible bonds with people and you will decide what you want to share and you don't want to share. And there will be no pressure because it's actually not part of the process. You know, it's it, the process done in a way where you get to do your own work while sharing this intimacy with so many without exposing yourself unless you choose to want to share. It really is really, really well done. And I think it's been perfected over four years and you guys are still perfecting it. And it, it's just, 
something that I'm so grateful for. And like I said, part of that process is self-forgiveness and having empathy for others. You don't walk out and, and say, at least my experience is I have not walked out and say, oh my God, they did this to me. Yeah, things happen to me. I have empathy for them. But I also took a part in that process. Like I said, I wasn't a present person. You know how hard that must have been to love somebody who's always looking around the corner? You're trying, intimacy is about seeing into you and to me in that moment. I didn't know how to be intimate with anyone in my life. I was so afraid. I was building to not only protect me, I thought I was protecting them. But there was nothing coming. And if it was, I could have dealt with it later. I could have used those skills in those moments. But I was, I was broken in that way. And when I left Hoffman, I was Scott again. And I was present. And I was that kid who loved being in the moment. And I got my life back in certain ways. And I stepped into a lot of hardships and really, really tough times. And I'm still, you know, there's days where I wake up in deep pain and there's days I wake up with deep joy. One of the books one of my friends recommended to me, uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, you know, this, this guy was an emperor, one of the most powerful people in the world. And he said, Amor Fati, which is uh, Latin for love of one's fate. And his belief was the suffering and the joy, you must love the same because everything in life is for you. And one of the beautiful things you guys talk about Hoffman is like, Everything that happened to you and every moment, don't you know, look back with regrets because it all led you to this moment. It's perfect. And you're here to do that work in that moment. So if someone's living, listening to this podcast and they're inspired to go in this moment or they're saying, maybe it's too late. And No, you're listening because you're exactly where you're supposed to be in this moment. And if you make this choice, then it's the right choice for you. And if you're not ready, don't go. You know, if you're not ready to surrender yet, don't go because you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah. Scott, I, I want to ask about your referring people to the process because you do it a bunch and we're grateful for it. But what I'm curious about is how are you having these conversations where people are being vulnerable enough to share their struggles that the Hoffman process would come up in the first place. Is that part of your job or is that just what you're doing post-process, just having raw conversations with people? How does that come about? Look, I think part of my job was always being there for people in a very intimate way. But like you said, it was a job. And then I was jumping from place to place. And I started to realize as much as I was being there for all these people, they didn't really know me because I was in their intimacy, but I wasn't sharing my own. What's interesting is I actually don't ever go to people and say, hey, I want to talk to you. I think you need to go to Hoffman. That's never happened. Um, I actually don't even bring it up in conversation of, oh my God, you know, you need, you need Hoffman. Like, I, I just don't because I don't believe that works. Like I just said, if someone is not ready, if they are not calling for it, I don't think the process is for them. But I can tell you, as you know, probably 20 of my friends have now gone in the last few years, if not more. And because of the Jay Shetty podcast and Lewis House podcast, I probably get a letter a week or every other week from people doing the process all around the world. And what I can tell you in response to your question is that people and I, because I'm being very present, I'm there with them in that moment. And we're having intimate conversations and we're getting to the real stuff. And I'm not having surface conversations with people at this point in my life. I'm being incredibly intimate because I'm intimate in that moment. That is bringing up, making people have 
comfortable to have those intimate conversations. And one thing leads to another. And so many times this sentence has come up. What did you do to get here? So many times people say, can I ask you, what did you do to get to this point? And then I say, I've done a bunch of things. One of those would be Hoffman. And I always suggest it as a foundation starting point. People then say, can you connect me? Or they'll hear about the change and they want to meet up with me and they want to see if it's true. Poor Eliza probably gets a text a week from me with me introducing someone who has a conversation with me at that level and says, please, can you connect me? Just yesterday, I was with a friend and she looked at me and she goes, I'm going in September. And my friend, my other friend just got out of the process. I think you're aware of that and had a beautiful process. Another friend just yesterday, she hit me and said, Hey, are you, when are you back in town? Let's get together. Blah, blah. I see you and I love you. You know, she was in a dark place and went about, I don't know, probably a year ago now. My friend Andrew went in a very dark moment in his life and came out and had the best moment of his life and is a drastically changed person, or let me say reclaimed person. And then I get these beautiful letters, you know, from people that have done the process because they've never met me, but they heard a podcast. And they heard about my experience and they signed up. Wow, I almost got emotional. Um, it's, uh, I just think so many of us, and like I said, that isn't something that goes away with Hoffman. I experience it all the time. We're just, we're living a human experience and we're so many of us are in pain. And we're looking for answers and we're looking for ways to not expose that pain because we're embarrassed of it. We're ashamed of it. We don't even know where it comes from. Bury it so deep so we don't ever have to face it. And you just get to a point in your life where you're tired of it. And you just want some answers and you want some understanding and you want some clarity. When I got to that point, I went to Hoffman and I'm seeing so many others get to that point doing the same. You know, there's a lot of similarities between Hoffman and Stoic philosophy. And, you know, it's this idea in Stoic philosophy that you can't change the outside world, but you can change your way of thinking. And Hoffman, I think, is, is a modern way of that. <laughs> we'll make sure to put that in the show notes about Stoic philosophy. I know it's got some really valuable related uh, teachings. Absolutely. And you know, it's, uh, you know, it's also, there's, there's Tao teachings that are very similar. Um, in Tao Te Ching, one of my favorite quotes from that, from that great ancient book is, um, what is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll repeat it so people can understand it. What is a good man but a bad man's teacher? How can you claim to be good unless you're going to be there for someone who isn't? Because all of us, what is a bad man but a good man's job? It's what you guys teach us at often. None of us are actually bad. We're just doing what we were taught or we were told. We're just experiencing each other in different ways. Like I said, often it's an amazing foundation to, to go on to this work and get to a place of self-love, which is what we're all working on. You know, and like I said, when people are like, oh, you know, they're not leaving the change, what is that triggering in you? That need for validation, that need for transactional love. And that's why you got to continue going into that process of, you know, I'm going to love people where they are because I love myself. The real power of self-compassion, of love for self, it's, it's an easy sentence to say and a challenging practice to embody. 
You know, um, I don't know if I've ever said this to you. Uh, I don't even know where I got this line from. Someone said it to me. I've never forgotten. Rejection is God's protection. Rejection is God's protection. Yep. And it's this idea that like, when we think someone's pushing us away or we think, why oh, don't they understand me? Or how could they do this to me? Later on in life, like I said, with Amor Fati, which is, you know, the suffering and the joy, you have to love them the same because they're all for you. Rejection is God's protection. Sometimes in that moment, it feels the worst. It feels like rejection. But if you keep living life and you keep moving forward, you're going to find out that it was actually for you. Beautiful. Scott, I'm so uh, grateful for this conversation on a Saturday morning. What's it like to, as you just share all of this in your memories of Hoffman, what do you notice? I'm a very different person because I like the foundation of me. Before, when I went to Hoffman, I loved the creation of me. Hoffman made me love the person that created that creation. I'm sure you have, because you've read a lot, Drew. Have you read Untethered Soul by Michael Singer? You know, this idea that this voice in our head that's going all the time, for there to be a voice that you hear, there has to be a listener. And the voice is our human experience, but the listener is our soul. It's our essence. And I was loving the voice, letting the voice lead. I had lost sight of the soul, the actual listener, what really was my essence. And Hoffman gave that back to me. Scott Braun, a.k.a. Scooter, I'm grateful for this conversation and the chance to connect with the reclaimed Scott and all that he is now foundationally showing up rather than creating. It's beautiful. Thank you. Appreciate all of you done, all of the things often teachers like Cheshta have done for me and Liza. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.